nothing but fools go. Well, it's great to see everyone. Are you glad you're here today? I hope you've been enjoying our service. Great music. Great to see the graduates, right? It's that time of year. Uh, amazing, uh, the graduates. And this is a, a super cool group of graduates in that uh, I think out of 16, maybe 11 of them came to Christ in youth ministries, middle school or high school, and just been really exciting to see God grab hold of their lives and where they're heading. So have you been hitting some open houses? Wow, what happened there? So, well, I have, and uh, there's actually some today, and there's a list of those out on the table if you want it, but uh, a lot of people are just getting the word out by social media or whatever, but uh, yeah, it's neat to see. This, this is a time for graduates where they, they're out of school now, and they have to start figuring out what they're going to do with their life, right? And what in life will bring them meaning and purpose. And really, this goes hand in hand with the new series that we're starting today called Fool's Gold, Chasing After the Wrong Stuff. Uh, Fool's Gold series, it's about the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is maybe one of the most misunderstood books in all the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It was written by a man named Solomon, who was the third king of Israel. And when his father, David, died, there was a little struggle for the throne, and, and David wanted Solomon to end up with it, and he did. And Solomon, he was young, and he knew he needed help. And God came to him and, and, uh, through a vision and basically asked him, what do you need? What would you ask? Which is about the closest thing in the Bible we come from God kind of giving you a blank check on something, you know, like, hey, what do you want? How would you answer that? What do you want? What can I give you? And uh, Solomon says, wisdom, wisdom and knowledge, that's what I want. And that pleased God. And, and God said, I'm going to give you wisdom and knowledge, but I'm also going to give you the stuff that you could have asked for, but you didn't. I'm going to give you riches, wealth, and honor. And through the course of his life, Solomon becomes the greatest king in the world. As a matter of fact, other leaders of other kingdoms travel to, to talk to Solomon, to meet with Solomon, to experience and learn from Solomon's wisdom from all over the world. Solomon amasses a fortune. He becomes the richest man in the world. He's got a great kingdom. I mean, everything is just turning out great. But Solomon also does some things that he shouldn't have done. And with all that wealth and with all that honor came a lot of temptation, and he ended up going the wrong way. And the book of Ecclesiastes is at the end of his life, as he's reflecting back on what life is all about. And then he gives us teaching and warning about how we should live our life. So, if you're a graduate, this is a great book for you to tune into. But if you're a skeptic, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I, I don't even know if I buy into the fact that there is a God, this is a great book for you to look at, to study, to find out about. Because it deals with philosophy. And so, whether you're a graduate, whether you're a skeptic, or anyone in between, any, any of us, it's helpful to all of us 
Because the writer, Solomon, challenges us with how we're living. And is it consistent with our philosophical view of the world? Which is a fancy way of, hey, this is how we think reality is. Are we living out a life that's consistent with what we believe reality is? It's just that. And I think in that case, it's good for all of us. So there's some things that we need to know before we launch in. Uh, to the first verse of chapter 1, there's some phrases that we need to get that they, they just keep showing up repeatedly throughout the book. And the first one is this, the phrase, under the sun. Under the sun is just a way that Solomon is describing life without God. Life under the sun as if this is all there is. Uh, another way of viewing that is life lived through a naturalistic philosophy. That's how, for example, an atheist or or somebody like that or an agnostic would live. Life lived as if there is no God, that that nature is all that we have. That's life under the sun. And then another term that's used in our specific version of Scripture is vanity. And vanity, it's it's a complex word, but it means meaningless. Or, or the futileness of life. So vanity, meaningless, futile, that's what's going on there. And then another phrase, chasing the wind, just like it sounds. It's chasing things in our lives that really ultimately will never catch, they'll never bring satisfaction, we'll never be able to obtain them or hang on to them. No lasting value. And as Solomon confronts us with this book, it's just, he just smacks us in the face. Uh, he confronts us with the bleak reality of life apart from God. And so, are we ready to start off in verse 1? Are you ready? Yes. All right, that was, that was way better than first service, I'm just saying. You guys are spot on. So grab your device or the uh, Bible in the chair rack in front of you, and we're going to start Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities. He's saying meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Bleak. Has anybody ever felt this way in your life? Nothing matters. It's just, it's all meaningless. Everybody kind of hit rock bottom that way that you care to admit or not, but yeah, it's it's verse 3. Let's go on. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place rises there again. Blowing toward the south and turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along. And on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new 
under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it's new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the latter things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. I mean, he's basically saying, hey, there's nothing really new. Yeah, we have new devices and this, but for, for us in our existence, there's nothing new. Everything's been done before. Every category of life has been lived. And then here we are, and basically when our life goes away, we're not going to be remembered. Sure, maybe for a generation or two. How many of you know a whole lot about your great, great, great grandfather? Okay, a few. But then you just add a few more generations, and all of a sudden, they're forgotten. Well, then you add a thousand years, and then they're way forgotten. He's just saying it's all a matter of time. And, and people will not remember you. And, and even if you get your name on a building, well then 2,000 years from now, that building will not stand. On and on it goes. And he's just kind of talking about the futility of life without God. And Solomon confronts us of any, with any delusion. He confronts any delusion that we may have that life is meaningful apart from God. Because life makes no sense if life under the sun is all there is. That's what he's saying. Let's continue. Next, next verse, verse 18. I, the preacher, and I'll get back to that in a moment. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that's been done under heaven. It's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this is also striving after wind. But in much wisdom, there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. They don't tell you that in school, right? Increasing, the more you know, the more, the more grief that you have. The, the more you understand, uh, the more pain there is associated with that. He's saying our lives are marked by pain and suffering and even confusion by, by what God might be doing if you believe in God. And it sounds depressing, but as he communicates these sobering truths about life without God, he's actually setting it against life and what it is with God. And so you have to, to see that part of it. Now, when he says, he calls himself, he re, the author, he never mentions, Solomon is never mentioned by name in the book. He's the son of David, the king of Jerusalem, and all that stuff, so we know it's Solomon. But he refers to himself by a Hebrew term, Koheleth. And Koheleth is translated in our version, teacher, or 
or preacher, in some other versions, teacher. And, and really, it's a little bit of a complex word, but it's almost like philosophical instructor. He, he's our philosophy instructor. He's our philosophy teacher. He's teaching us about the meaning of life is, is what's packed in to that word. And what he does is Solomon pushes every reader of Ecclesiastes. It put, he pushes us to the logical conclusions of our own personal philosophical view. And even if we don't think we have a philosophical view, we do. We're, we believe something that's driving our life. And he's saying, it's interesting because he goes through this and this guy, he's done it all. He's been the wealthiest person. He's been king. He's in authority. You know, he had a, a thousand women uh, between his wives and concubines. I mean, it was just nuts, all the things he experienced in his life. And sometimes he was following God, and he always knew God, and sometimes he deviated away from God. But he's basically saying, no matter how exciting your life is, without God, it's meaningless. And then the flip of that is, no matter how mundane or boring your life may be, it's chuck full of meaning and purpose if you're doing that life with God. That's what he's telling us. And as a philosopher, he may say something like this. For example, what if I, what if I ask you, um, what if a friend, a good friend of yours, came and asked you and they said, hey, here's what I need you to do. There's a corner in Fremont, uh, 5th Street and State Street. What I need you to do is wear a red shirt, any red shirt, and stand on that corner between 3 and 4 p.m. on Tuesday afternoon. Just do it as a friend. And, and what are you going to say? Why? Why would you want me to do that? Why? Why? And, and, and your friend just says, hey, as a friend, I'm just asking you to just do it. I can't really explain why. Just do it. Go down to the corner between 3 and 4 and, and wear a red shirt down on the corner, and then, then you're done. That's all I'm asking you to do. Are you going to do it? You're still going to be going, well, why? There's got to be a reason. T tell me why, and I'll do it, but I don't just want to do that. I don't want to take time. I want, there's got to be a purpose, right? So the philosopher says, look at you. You demand a purpose for one hour of your life from all your friends. You, you got to know the meaning. But some people, the same person, can live their entire life without ever asking the question, what am I here for? Which is the most important question in your life. So just like you would ask, well, why do you want me down there for an hour? We should be asking, why are we here at all? Graduates, skeptics, all of us should be asking this question, why am I here? It's life's biggest question. And there, philosophically, or just logically, maybe it's a better way to say it, because I think sometimes when I say philosophically, some people are going, oh boy. You know, so logically, for us to exist, there are four main questions for existence. So the four main questions of existence are simply, where did I come from? You know, here I am, where did I come from? 
Where am I going? Why am I here? And then you could throw in a, a fourth one, would be, and how should I live? These are the four main questions just existing that you might ask of your own existence. Where did I come from? Where am I going? Why am I here? How should I live? It's kind of logical, but here's the deal. The answers to all four of those questions are linked. The answers to all four questions are dependent on previous answers. It should all flow. It should all logically be consistent, right? Does that make sense? Where, if you're going to ask, well, where am I going? Well, that might depend on where I came from. Or, well, why are you here? Well, that might depend on where I came from and where I'm going. You know, all that, it's all got to connect. If it, it's like they stack these four questions. The answers to these questions stack like blocks if they connect with each other. But if they don't connect, it just falls like a house of cards. It, it doesn't work. So that's what Solomon is getting us to see. We have to be consistent in all four answers in order for us to have a shred of intellectual integrity. They have to match. But there's a huge disconnect in our world today. And that's why Ecclesiastes is so key for our culture, especially our American culture. Um, Here's how Bible-believing Christians tend to answer those questions. Where did I come from? I came from the hand of God. God is creator. Where am I going? Well, as a believer, I'm going to heaven. But for everyone, it's either heaven or hell for eternity. Why am I here? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, how should I live? Well, I should live in obedience to God because he's Lord. And every answer is logically consistent with the answer that proceeds. But that is not what our culture teaches today. In our schools, for example. In our schools, here's how we teach that. It would be, you know, a, a, a student would ask a teacher, teacher, where did I come from? And then the teacher, according to a naturalistic philosophy, nature is all there is, will say something like that. Well, you're, you're here because of a, a, the chance, random mutations. You're, you're here, it's really like a cosmic accident. You're here because of uh, different mutations that happened and then combined some survival of the fittest, and bam, here you are. Oh, well, teacher, where am I going? Well, when you die, then your body will fuel organisms that come later. You know, that's the answer. Okay, well, if that's true, teacher, why am I here? Why am I here? And this is where the answers no longer logically line up because the teacher's going to say something like, well, why are you here? You're, you're here to live a good life and enjoy yourself. And, and then when they go, and this is kind of connected with how they should live, well, well you should live, you know, with joy and, and make sure that, you know, you, you should, why are you here to make the world a better place? And what happens is they start introducing morality 
into questions number three and four. But there's no morality that you've built in questions one and two. So it becomes totally logically inconsistent. So when I've talked to atheists, walking them through that has been beneficial for many of them to challenge their own philosophical views or their own logical conclusions about life. Because what they end up doing is thinking, well, we didn't, you know, we're all just an accident. It's like this. So I, where'd you come from? Well, it's just really an accident, you know, and then where are you going? Well, I'm just worm food. Okay. Well, then why am I here? Well, you're here to, to live a good life, help other people. What? Where'd that come? Where'd all the morality come from? Because if we're just accidents, there is no morality. And that is the inconsistency that is always popping up. That's, that's the disconnect in our culture because if we're all accidents, there's really no reason. There is no reason for our existence. But here's why do they answer that way? Because we can't live that way. We can't live with no reason for our existence. So atheists and agnostics will try to pack in some morality in order to give reason for their existence, even though logically it is totally inconsistent with the first two questions of existence. You following me? Does that make sense? Or have I lost you all? Yeah. If we're all accidents, if it's just for survival of the fittest, if it's just random mutations that brought us here, then it doesn't matter if I'm a person who loves my neighbor or if I'm a person who eats my neighbor. It does not matter. It would make more sense if I was a person who eats my neighbor because that's survival of the fittest. That's what Solomon That's really the crux that Solomon is trying to get us to see in this, in a logical way. Because otherwise, hey, if there's no God, one person's thoughts about morality, that, those thoughts are no better than any other person's thoughts about morality. It doesn't matter because we don't have any objective standard to compare it to. Well, 3,000 years ago, Solomon is hammering this for us to get it. He's hammering us with the lack of consistency when we're answering this number one most important question, why am I here? Because life is meaningless apart from God. There's only two logical answers. There either is a God or there isn't a God. And so if there is a God, if there is a higher power, if there is a creator, then that, there's a bunch of things that follow that. But if, if naturalism is all there is, just nature, and there's nothing higher than this, and we are accidents, and it all just kind of happen frequently, although you still have the problems of origin, and, you know, where did we come from, and how life begin, and all that, but let's set all that aside, and just we're here by accidents. We're all, it's just a huge accident. The problem is nearly everyone who sides against the existence of God, whether they're a hardcore atheist or a, a basic agnostic, 
they have this disconnect that they cannot escape because they may not believe there's a God, but they have this persistent internal moral convictions, these consistent eternal internal moral convictions that keeps driving their life. Even atheists believe that people should do certain things and people should absolutely not do other things. But if we're all accidents, if there's no higher objective morality, that is not true. But you can't live that way is the problem. And again, I think it helps to expose this. And here's what, here's what I say for, for years. I've been saying to, to atheists that I've met. And you know, we have great, fascinating conversations, I think. But I'll tell them, it, it's like you, you have your cake and eat it too. You don't, you're saying that there is no God, yet you steal from God the concept of morality. Because God's all about, there's right and wrong, there's moral. You want to say there is no God, but out of nowhere then, because if there is no God, you're not getting this from anywhere, you're, you're stealing from the concept of God that you've heard other people talk about, a right and a wrong. You're stealing from God a morality. And you're doing that for a reason. You're doing that, you're stealing from God morality, so that you can put that, add that as a reason for your existence so that you will feel better about your life. But it's totally illogical and inconsistent with the fact that you don't believe there's a God. It doesn't really add up. You're just stealing some things from God in order for you to feel good about your own existence. But logically, it makes no sense. But that's why you're doing it. And thinking through some of Solomon's observations about life apart from God, it really causes us, you read through this, it sounds depressing, and, and you get there, and, and if you read enough of it and you think deep enough about it, it causes kind of our souls to cry out and say, There's, there must be something more than just this endless cycle of life and, and insignificance and no meaning and no purpose. There's got to be something more than that. Right. The reason you cry out for that in your soul is because you have a creator and you are designed for something more. You have an appetite for something, a reason to exist that's beyond you. And by the way, if you have any appetite you have, there's always something that answers that appetite. You, we never have any appetite of something that doesn't exist. So just the appetite of your soul crying out to say, there's got to be a reason, there has to be purpose. Logically, the conclusion is there is a reason and purpose, and that's only found in our Creator. That's only found in God. That's the only time we have significance is when we remember our Creator. We, we understand life through the grid that we were created by God that God is a good and powerful creator, that he loves us, and uniquely he gave mankind uh, the ability to know him and love him back because that's the kind of God that he is who exists in, e in community, in eternity, in the Trinity. And so he creates us, humans, 
with a special ability to recognize him and be able to know him and to love him back. Of course, we've all misused that freedom to know and follow God, and we've all done our own thing. And so what Scripture describes as sin, we've all done wrong. We've all sinned against God. We've all rebelled against God. And then God loves us anyway, and he makes another way for us to be reconnected with him by sending his one and only son, Jesus, the only person to live a perfect life without sin, and then Jesus voluntarily giving up his life to pay our sin penalty because for justice to exist in the universe, sin has to be wrong, has to be punished. And so that's how we can be forgiven without violating God's justice and without disrupting the ultimate justice that we will experience in the universe. Does that make sense? Does that make a little bit of sense? Okay, all right. So, I, uh, couple, some of you know, a couple weeks ago, I went in for a minor surgery. So a little thing on my knee, meniscus repair or whatever. And so I'm in there, and I've never had a surgery. So they're asking all these questions. Are you allergic to this? You know, and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. No, I don't think so. And then, then I started realizing that a lot of these questions that I was kind of taking like as a compliment, oh, you've never been in surgery before. Wow. And I'm like, man, this lady's thinking I'm really healthy. But then I thought a little bit more, and I'm thinking, no, she's thinking I'm really old, and it's amazing that I haven't had surgery before. You know, it's like... <laughs> I saw that as a completely different way once I thought about that just a little bit deeper. It's like, oh, that's why she's thinking that. She's like, an old guy like you, you're, how'd, you, how'd you make it this far? You know, so anyway. And so, we're, so I'm getting ready to go into surgery, and I'm there with my wife, and I've got an IV, and, you know, they're poking me, and like, so, you know, I'm going to put this IV. You've had these before? And I'm like, no, I've actually never had an IV before. <laughs> but, but my daughter, who's a nurse, has practiced on me many times, so, you know, I got this. So we do all the regular stuff that we do. And then it's time for the, the drug that they give you to knock you out. And so they're just getting, you know, you're in this little curtain thing and they're going to wheel me. And I'm kind of interested in what the, what the operating room looks like. You know, like this, this will be, I'll be wheeled into an opera just like on TV. You know, so I, I'm ready for that. And so they push this needle into my, you know, my bag or into my port there, my IV. And they say, you know, in about 30 seconds, you're going to be out. And I'm like, okay, and they immediately, right that one second, they start wheeling me in. And we go through the first set of doors, and I'm thinking, okay, what's well, it been like 15 or 20 seconds? I don't feel anything. That's the last I remember of anything right there. <laughs> it was like, I'm like, this is about 20 seconds. I don't feel it. You know, I, I'm totally, you know. And then about one second later, I, I'm laying, and, and like, I'm, I kid you not, one second later, Somebody says, Mr. Pinkerton? And I'm immediately, I, I, mean, I don't feel groggy. I'm just like, yeah, what, what? And she's like, well, it's, it's over and everything went well. Over? I still didn't get to see the operating room. You know, I'm, I'm like, you have got to be, I mean, it just went like that. And I didn't feel groggy or anything. I mean, one minute I'm going, hey, man, I'm 20 seconds in. I'm not feeling, you know, and the next minute, Mr. Pinkerton, yeah, what's going on? Hey, you know. Sometimes I wonder you know, we live our life, and when it's all over, are we just going to wake up and it's just like, boom, gone, wow. That went so fast. And here's the thing. 
if we live our lives as if there is no God, and by the way, Christians do this too, it will be just like that. We won't remember. It'll just be gone. It'll be as if it didn't happen. Because all of that stuff that we pursued in life, whether it was looks or wealth or security or relationship, all that, it'll just be burned up. It'll just be nothing. On the flip side, if we live with purpose and meaning, if we live our life that there's more than just nature, then there's more than just life under the sun, that there is a God on the throne of heaven over the universe. And when we live our lives in relationship with Him, it gives purpose for everything. He invites us to be players in the universe. And so if we, if we just try to do life His way, I mean, we, we take care of our family, we Maybe we invite people to church or we have a conversation with somebody that leads them to Jesus, let's say. Do you realize that a billion years from now, when we're sitting around the throne of God laughing and rejoicing with Him, we, can, we will turn to our friend and say, remember that day we had that conversation? And he'll say, yeah, I remember, and we'll be rejoicing, and it'll be true forever. Because we lived as if God is real and that he, he does give us meaning. It changes everything. And so you read this book, Ecclesiastes, and some of you will probably start reading it. And, and let me just warn you, it sounds so depressing. It's life without God. Life under the sun. It has no meaning or purpose. But really, it's not depressing if you scratch through the surface. Really, it's empowering because the flip side is that life with God, life knowing that there's more than just what there's under the sun, life with God in that way is infused with purpose, meaning. It, he gives us a reason to live. And then everything we do, as we are tapped into God, it has a purpose. Whether we're talking to somebody about Jesus, whether we're, we're picking up a grandchild. Could you imagine me picking up uh, Gemma, my youngest granddaughter? Because here's a naturalist. Oh, she's so cute. Oh, hold, hold it. No, she's just an organism that's come from my line of organisms, and there's really no purpose of her being there, and she's really no cuter than any other kid, and kids aren't any cute anyway, because that's all just some pre-formulated thing I've learned from society. It really actually means nothing, and there's no reason or existence for me, for her, or for anybody that... We don't do that, do we? You cannot live that way. You see God's design and purpose and you start living that way, it changes everything. So whether you're doing something exciting or something bold or going out on the limb for God, which we should all do once in a while, or whether we're doing the mundane, whether we're cleaning out our closet in our bedroom, 
We do it for God. Well, why clean out our closet in the bedroom? Because God is a God who brings order out of chaos, and we reflect our God. There's purpose behind what we're doing, and we start saying, God, I want to live with you. I want to live with reason. I want to live with purpose. And all of a sudden, our life gets chuck full of joy. We're, we're infused. We're enlightened because we know, hey, we can pursue some of these things. That's okay, but we don't think we're ever getting satisfaction from those things. Not from money or achievement or work or looks or relate. We're, that's not the end all. Those things can be good things, but when we, we can enjoy them, when we know they will not, are, they are incapable of bringing satisfaction like God brings into our lives. Under God, knowing God, we can have joy in all those things because we enjoy them in their proper context. And we're not expecting them to, to do for us what they can never do. They will never fulfill us. They will never bring us significance in and of themselves. They can't because we're created for more than that. Only God can. Oh, Kevin, Kevin. Some of you say, Kevin, you don't understand. Kevin, I believe. I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. You're, you're preaching to the choir, man. Yeah. Okay. Do you live like that? Do you live your life in a logically consistent way with what you say you believe? Because if you do, you will want, you'll want to be a part of God's church. You'll want to be here every time the doors are opened. Why? Because you'll want to learn more about God, and you'll want to rub shoulders with God's people, and you'll want to fulfill your role to encourage each other and help each other in life. You'll make Jesus the highest priority in your life if you're living in a way that's logically consistent with what you say you believe. That's what Solomon it's telling us, don't waste your life on anything less than pursuing God. Because it's meaningless, there's nothing there. He's warning us, don't waste your life that way. Let's stand and we'll pray together. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. Thanks for your love. And God, thank you for giving us meaning and purpose in life. We don't deserve that. We, we don't deserve life. You graciously give us life. For, for most of us here, we, you've allowed us to know you. We don't deserve that. You've graciously forgiven us in all the ways that we've, we've done wrong against you. We don't deserve that. Thank you. And you've done it with sacrificial love, costly love. And you teach us how to love. Thank you. God, for every believer here, Lord, we're asking you, help us to live in a way that's logically consistent with a believer who knows you exist and that you love us 
Lord, help us to love you back. And Father, for those who are here who aren't believers yet, Lord, I pray that you would impact their heart by, by your Spirit to, to help them to see their soul's hunger for something deeper, something more, and actually that's all pointing to you as Creator. Lord, help them to see it. Help them to explore. Help them to seek truth. Help them to seek you. God, thanks for us to bringing us together here at Grace. Lord, thanks for church, your church. Lord, and help us to live in a way that honors you. Lord, because we want to serve you and enjoy you forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.